Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Glad to have you guys here. We're getting ready to start a three-week series on gospel conversations, uh, kind of what they are, the, the theology behind them, um, and, and just talk about how, how they integrate with our walk walk with the Lord. So um, we've got Slido tonight. Our number, if I could read that correctly, is 370-908. You can go on your mobile phone or your tablet, go to slido.com, put that number in, and then you can ask questions. And if you, or you can review the questions, and if there's a question that you find of interest, please like it. That'll move it up to the, the top of the queue. So as we start doing Q&A, we, uh, we can answer the ones that, uh, that, that have the most interest. So I think other than that, we're good, we're good to go. Well, let's open in prayer. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Uh, thankful for your word, Father, for, for, its, for it being a foundation, Father, for our life, for bringing light and understanding. And so as we open your word tonight, open our hearts and our minds to your truth and, and let us be changed by the, our encounter with your truth. Let us not be the same people that walk out of here that walked in because we encountered your truth tonight. Uh, bless Jay as he, as he teaches. And it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian, and welcome to Coffee House Theology. Good crowd tonight. Good to see you guys here. Uh, as you know, we had originally scheduled for Aaron Bryant from Avenue South Campus to be here, but his son had a football game rescheduled, and so I let Aaron off the hook, right? So he needs to be a good dad, and so uh, he'll be with us two weeks uh, from tonight for our third week, so we just flipped him, and so uh, we'll have him uh, kind of doing the wrap-up of this three-part series. Uh, also, just a quick programming note, most of you should have gotten the church email today. Uh, uh, we made the decision as a staff this week uh, to not hold uh, the baptism service and church, pic church picnic on Sunday evening. Uh, there is just a lot of uh, COVID-related issues going on right now, uh, and so we wanted to just be mindful of that uh, and respectful. It's not very fun at a church picnic if nobody can share food, and so um, we certainly uh, just wanted to, to kind of respect boundaries there. And then some, some of the parents with kids and baptism, and it's pretty close quarters back there, those kind of things, we wanted to just be sensitive to that as well. Uh, no change in worship services, and we will have the four o'clock uh, worship service, no change in our regular schedule, not a shift uh, there, but this was kind of an add-on, so we're going to move it to October the 3rd. Uh, it will also be a lot cooler than Lord willing, uh, as I think it's supposed to stay with these crazy humid temperatures through the weekend. So uh, just a, a decision, so I'll let you know about that, and, um, and we had several great conversations with people about baptism this week, and so I'm excited about what God's doing, so if you want to talk to us about that, uh, I would love to have that conversation with you as well. Well, tonight, uh, part one of three in Gospel Conversations, and so keep your Bibles handy. We're going to look at several sections, but last week we talked about the theology of the church, and so we talked about what the church is, who the church is, uh, how the church is organized, uh, what we're supposed to do as the church, and so that leads us naturally uh, into a key part of our strategy as a church family, because one thing that we always want to do is be sure that we are living intentionally the way Jesus taught us to, uh, and the way that the church modeled for us in the first centuries. And so uh, it, just reminding you of kind of picking up where we left off, our mission as a church is engaging the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend some time tonight talking about that, especially that part, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we want to equip you to do that anywhere, anytime with anybody. So the idea, of course, is not merely that the only way for people to hear the gospel is to get them to church, but it's that we carry the gospel to people where they're at, and we want you to be equipped to be able to answer questions, engage people anywhere, anytime with anybody. So the vision for our church across all eight campuses that we adopted several years ago was in response to God's leading, 
we will see disciples making disciples who will share the whole gospel with our neighbors and the nations. So our goal is 500,000 gospel conversations. And that might sound audacious, it may sound a lot, but when you multiply that out or divide it, rather by the number of members that we have across our eight campuses, that comes down to about two times a month. If every member would share their faith two times a month, uh, we would be, get that, at 500,000 gospel conversations. And we want to create and resource a church multiplication movement, 100 healthy congregations throughout Middle Tennessee and beyond. And just like the mission of the church, all of those are linked together. The reality is, is the imperative in the Great Commission, of course, is to be disciples who make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's the imperative of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son uh, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. And so as we grow together as disciples, we need to be in healthy churches. And so that's the idea of of 100 healthy local congregations in Middle Tennessee and beyond is that we want growing disciples to be in healthy churches. Or it's like a cut flower. That uh, if you share the gospel with somebody, right, that's great. But if they're not rooted, if they don't have the opportunity to be in an environment in which they're going to nurture, they're going to wither. Because how we grow is we grow together in biblical community. So the values that support that mission and vision are this. Number one, gospel first and always. And we'll talk a little bit about Romans 1.16 in a moment. Uniquely called is number two. We believe that we're all participants in the kingdom and not just merely spectators. Number three is intentional innovation. And the scripture reference there in Mark 2 is to the four men who ripped a hole in the roof in order to get their paralytic friend to Jesus. In other words, we want to use the innovation and creativity that God has got us to get people to Jesus. Not for the sake of just being creative in and of itself, but for the sake, again, of the gospel. Number four, we want to cross cultures. Uh, we want to be a blessing to uh, be, uh, be blessed in order to be a blessing to others. We want to engage with people who are different than us from all spectrums because we believe that God gospel, it crosses all barriers. And then last but not least, of course, multiplying matters. And a reference for that is the Great Commission, as I just quoted. So our strategy is what we call disciples multiplying disciples. And that's this pinwheel that you see. And we tried several ways to show this because the idea is, is it's not static, but it's in movement because that's the way that, that we move and we grow. And so there at, at the top of the pinwheel, you have gospel conversations as we celebrate the testimonies of people who have come to know Jesus through our witness, as we pray for those who are lost and searching, and then as we send, uh, as we send uh, our people out into our communities and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, as we send missionaries out into the, the nations uh, and also into to cities and other places throughout Middle Tennessee and beyond, uh, that's gospel conversations. As people grow, we know we want them to get in groups where they will grow in their faith, we will care for one another, and we will equip them as Ephesians 4 talks about, as Brian talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then the going piece, uh, that's that we go and we serve on our campuses, we serve in our communities, Middle Tennessee Initiative, we have partnerships in every place we have a campus in the areas of poverty and healthcare and education in order that we might bless and serve the community uh, for the opportunity to share the gospel. And then we have our partners nationally and internationally uh, by which we help plant churches, meet needs, all of those kind of things. And so all of that is designed to work together. It's, it's not static, it's moving. 
shooting all of the time, uh, that we need to be engaged in all three of those realms. But that top one is gospel conversations. And so that's that word evangelism is what is kind of the old term for it, what we used to call our witnessing, uh, sharing the gospel with other people. And so we've been working for a long time to help our people in our church understand what that means. And our team developed this definition, and we're going to break this down tonight and really over the next three weeks. But it is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost and searching and trusting the Holy Spirit with the results. Sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost and searching and trusting the Holy Spirit with the results. And I don't know about you, but in the tradition that I grew up in, in First Baptist Church of Salem, Illinois, there was a, a certain way that we did evangelism. By and large, that was the Monday, time, Monday night visitation program that my home church had. And so you would get names of people. Sometimes you would just totally cold call them, right? You'd just go knock on a door. Uh, you memorized a little gospel com- uh, uh, presentation. There were various forms. Sometimes there were tracts. Uh, that you were given. And, uh, and so you would go out. And my dad was chairman of the deacons. And so he was obligated, I guess, at least, you know, once or twice a month uh, that we would jump into one of those teams. And sometimes I would tag along with them. Uh, and sometimes God used it in that era of evangelism. And, and we had great conversations with people. Uh, and uh, it was neat to see. And, and just here as a kid. Other times, well, let me be honest, the majority of the time, it did not go so well. I remember running away from a dog that was trying to bite us. Uh, You know, I remember having doors slammed in our face. Uh, I remember hearing words that I had never heard used in my home before uh, at us. Kind of like the same time I joined my dad for church league bowling night on Thursday night as well. Uh, And let's just say some of the different denominations, well, they they thought differently of what they could drink and what they could say at the bowling alley. And so I got an education, right? Uh, Completely just by tagging along with my dad for all of these things. But that was my picture of what evangelism was. What I didn't see, and I'm sure my home church taught it, but what I didn't see was the connect to my everyday life, conversations that I could have. And the first time that I can really remember sharing the gospel, between my junior and senior year of high school, uh, I had an experience at a summer camp where I experienced what I call a, a gospel breakthrough. Uh, when I was seven years old, I knew I was a sinner. I needed a savior. Uh, you heard the story about how unsanctified I was Sunday morning. I wouldn't forgive my brother, right, for smashing my record. Uh, you know, so even at that age, I knew that I needed Jesus. And so I had accepted Jesus at seven. I was baptized when I was about 11. But I, as typical in a small town, um, you know, in Illinois, I was infatuated with sports cars and girls, not necessarily in that order. And so it was between my junior and senior year of high school at a summer camp that I, I really began to understand the truth of Romans 10, 9 and 10, right? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I, and I believed I was saved. I did. But, and I didn't have any trouble believing that God had raised Jesus from the dead. But that Jesus is Lord thing, that Jesus cared who I dated, that Jesus cared about the choices that I made, that Jesus cared about what major I was going to choose for college. Like those, those things were kind of new to me. And so one of the things that I became very convicted about that summer was that I had grown up playing ball with these, you know, years and years from peewee ball all the way to now we were playing varsity basketball and baseball with the same pretty much group of guys. And I was the only believer among them. There was a Mormon and there was me and everybody else was, you know, pretty much unchurched. And so I became convicted that I I needed to share Jesus with them. And so I would like put tracks in my backpack, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I would highlight verses in my Bible and I just was, was trying to be ready. But it was the very last away game of our senior year of our basketball season. And in Illinois, you have like one school per county. It's not like Spring Hill where we have like 16 schools, you know, in one, one town. 
And so you had long bus rides. Like it was to be like two and a half hours to an away game one way and then back. And so it was, you know, February, early March, I think. And we were coming back. And my friend Tony, his mom had just been diagnosed with cancer. And so you, most of the time we're joking, you know, or cutting up on the bus, listening to, you know, our Sony Walkmans that were so cool back then. But Tony turns to me and he says, hey, Strother, you go to church, right? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, uh, my mom's got cancer. She's going to die. What's going to happen to her when she dies? Okay, here we go, right? And so I launched into everything that I knew to tell him about the Bible. Uh, you know, I, I, every witnessing thing I could think about, I shared with him. And, and, you know, we had a good conversation. And Tony didn't come to faith that night. But I looked up and I noticed that the entire bus was listening. And there was just that moment where it was like, yep, this is what you're supposed to do. And it came about in just an everyday conversation, you know, 17 years of relationship with these guys growing up in my hometown. It was the first time I can really remember sharing the gospel uh, and sensing, okay, God, you're in that. I'm just going to trust you. Uh, Fast forward a couple of years when I was in college, uh, I had the opportunity to start working as a youth minister at 19 years old. And now I was really convicted. And I began to pray this prayer about that time. Lord, would you just let me lead one person to Jesus? All right, just, just one, just one. And so I ended up working at this little summer camp. It was an associational camp. It had two sides to it. Uh, there was the bunkhouse, uh, girls on one side, guys on the other, and kind of a common room in between. And then there was a pole barn that was like a gymnasium slash worship center slash cafeteria with a little scummed over fish pond next to it. And that was it. Like that was all we had to work with at this camp. Uh, and there were about 50 teenagers from these little churches in our, in our region and area. And so there was a boy who showed up on the very first day of camp and you could tell he wasn't with the youth group. You know, everybody had their little group and the groups weren't big, but they, they all had their little posse. But this kid was by himself. His name was Joey. And so I learned that Joey was from Georgia. And I was like, how did you end up at our little middle of nowhere youth camp? And he said, well, my dad saw an ad in the paper you see, my parents are divorced, and I spend my, son, my, my school year with mom in Georgia, but I spend summers with dad, but my dad hates me, so he signs me up for every camp and everything he can find, doesn't matter what it is. And oh, by the way, I'm supposed to be on some medication, but my dad didn't send it with me. I th- said, oh, it's going to be a fun week. And sure enough, like we're playing some game, night number one, and Joey gets wound up, and he was on Adderall, you know, for ADHD. And man, he got wound up, and I've never seen a kid like this. I mean, he literally would just start sprinting. It was late at night, 11, midnight, up and down the fields like the rows of corn. And he just, I've never seen somebody wound up like this kid. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was in way over my head, right, as a youth leader at this thing. I had no you know, medical degree, no, no knowledge of this stuff, no experience with it. He finally just collapsed. But I remember that night, he just kept saying, I said, Joey, what do you need? He's like, I need peace. I need peace. I said, okay. Fast forward a couple of nights and the youth evangelist who was sharing the gospel that night shared and, and asked kids to respond and to talk to one of the leaders. And so Joey came and found me. And he said, what that guy's talking about is what I need. I need Jesus. And so I fumbled my way through an awkward gospel presentation, but Joey prayed to receive Christ. And I was like, praise God. Well, that night, last night of camp, nobody slept all week. We played some game. Guess what happened? Joey didn't have his meds. Joey got all wired up again. And so he starts running up and down rows of corn. And so finally, I just grabbed him. I think I had to tackle him, the sweaty kid. And I just said, Joey, you know Jesus now, and he can bring you peace. Let's pray. And I think I held the kid in a, like, a, like, like this as we prayed for peace. But when I said amen, that kid relaxed and went to bed. And I was like, 
Jesus can make a difference, you know? And I was hooked, I'm telling you. At that moment, I thought, Lord, you can take me to heaven. Like, I got to lead one kid to Christ. And, and so in my mind and my heart, I was like, Lord, if you would just give me opportunities to do that, I would be so grateful. And so, you know, in those moments, I learned a couple of things. Number one, I, I learned that most evangelism comes when you least expect it, right? With my buddy, Tony. Number two, I learned you've got to always be prepared because you don't know. It's not going to happen at the moment you think it does. So you've got, you've got to be prepared. But number three, right, I learned that the gospel's real and it transforms lives and it changes people. And so, you know, I began to to just be, I have a passion for evangelism, an interest in it. And I've realized that sometimes I think we do overcomplicate it. And so we, we do need to be equipped and prepared. And that's what this time is about. But at the same time, I want to reduce any stigma. I want to bring down the walls of any intimidation that you have to be like a master in apologetics, that you have to have the whole Bible memorized. Because I'm telling you, I butchered those early gospel you know, presentations. But God used it anyway. The key part, as we'll see, is our faithfulness. And so, yes, we want to be prepared as much as possible. We, we, we do want to have as many answers as we can. Why? Because it'll bring down barriers to the gospel. But at the same time, it's our obedience that's the, that is the most important thing. And so when it comes to this definition of a gospel conversation, I told you, I want to spend a lot of time on this first one, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, because that's where it begins. And Brian's going to share some more about this next week, but it really is out of the overflow of what God is doing in our own hearts that we are the best evangelists. And so the more time we spend, the more rooted we are in the gospel, the more natural it is just going to overflow from us. So we value as a church and as a people the gospel first and always because it is the power of God for everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 says what? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to all who believe, and first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And if you don't know, that is the verse that set off the Protestant Reformation. That is the verse by which a monk named Martin Luther, who was trying to earn his way to God by works, finally said, It's faith. That's the answer. That's the answer I have been looking for. We need to be reminded, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the power is not in us. So let's get that straight from the beginning. Now, God uses us. We'll talk about that. But the power is not in us. It's in the gospel itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Now, we know that Paul was a brilliant communicator. We know that he had the finest education in the, the one of the, under one of the leading uh, rabbis in all of Israel. And we know that Paul was able to be wise and brilliant in speech. But he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Translation, I want you to believe in Jesus and not in my rhetoric. I want you to put your trust in the crucified Christ and not my ability to memorize a presentation. Okay, that, that is what Paul is pointing to here. And that's so important for us to remember that it's not merely about our tactics, but it's about the power of the gospel itself. On the next page, one of the things that we've got to really work to do is to clarify gospel confusion. 
We've got to clarify gospel confusion. Deconstruction, now that's kind of what the the term is that has been labeled as people move away from faith. It it happens in a three-part progression. First, the gospel is assumed by a generation. If you want to see a stunning example of this, look back into the book of Judges where it says, there arose a generation that knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And so what had happened? A generation assumed, hey, everybody knows what God did. He brought us out of the promised land, right? He delivered us from slavery. Well, that generation did not teach it to the next generation. So we can't assume the gospel. Number two, then the gospel is confused. We get confused. Well, is this gospel? Is that gospel? And we'll talk about that in just a second. And so the gospel gets confused. And then the gospel is lost. Greg Gilbert, who wrote a book called What is the Gospel, says, I think the energy generated by discussions about the gospel points to a general fog of confusion that swirls around it these days. When you come right down to it, Christians don't just agree on what the gospel is, even Christians who call themselves evangelical. There are three, as has been noted, false gospels that are just permeating our culture in America right now. Number one is the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you follow God and you obey what the Bible says, then you are going to be healthy and wealthy. And you are not going to have to suffer, and you can name it and claim it, and on and on we can go. And, of course, that's the obvious form. There's a lot more subtle forms as well. Bargaining with God, God, I'm going to do this, and then you're going to do that for me, right? That kind of thinking has crept into our churches. Number two, what we might call the personal gospel, or I'm going to construct a gospel of my own liking. I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I'm going to make sure that it makes me feel really good, and then that's what I'm going to hold on to. The third one is the political gospel, that there are a lot of people in our culture who are convinced that, you know, through politics, that that's the way the world's going to be saved, that, you know, as we align ourselves with particular parties or particular platforms, that's going to make a difference. Now, most of you in this room have heard my teaching on politics and the gospel. You'll know that I believe that is an arena in which we should engage as salt and light. But the reason that we engage in salt and light is because we are Christians who are exercising our influence for the common good. We're stewarding that in our culture. We don't rely on politics to save us. A platform, a president, a party, those things cannot rescue us from our sin. Instead, we engage in those arenas in order to help people understand that the Christian way is the healthiest, most flourishing way for mankind to live. And there's an important difference between the two. So to be clear, right, we don't give allegiance to a donkey. We don't give it to an elephant. Our allegiance belongs to who? The lamb, Jesus. That's where our ultimate allegiance lies, and we need to keep that in perspective. Uh, Number uh, B, letter B there. It is the gospel of Jesus, period. One of the ways to note that we're off base on the gospel is that if you can take somebody's message and hear in it, it is the Jesus Christ and you do this. Jesus Christ and these works, Jesus Christ and this system, then it's not the gospel. It's a form of works righteousness, or even worse, it's a cult. And, and that's really ultimately what a cult is, because it's, they'll use the name Jesus, but it's all of these other things that you have to do. Also, if it's Jesus or anything else, just to be clear, like that's not Christianity either. Uh, it's pluralism, syncretism, whatever you want to call it, smorgasbord of beliefs, but, but that's, that's not Christianity. So that's the easiest test, right, when it comes to the gospel. But a true gospel presentation has to contain these four biblical truths. That God reigns, God rules, God created, man sinned. Number three, Christ, Christ came, died, and rose again. And number four, we respond. And that involves faith and repentance biblically. 
Two sides of the same coin, right? Turning away from ourselves, repenting from our sin, and embracing, trusting in God. Today, do you know which one of those is missing the most? Number two, man's sin. That's the one that our world is trying to explain away, okay? God created it's such a beautiful world. You can see it, Louis Armstrong, right? What a beautiful world, right? That's, you know, that's, that's people embrace that. Number three, people love Jesus in our culture. And there's good reason why, <laughs> you know? He is a compelling figure, even to people who are outside of the faith. And they love Jesus, but they hold him up as what? An example, as a great teacher, you know, of all of these kind of things. But the thing that our culture is having a hard time with is number two. That's the one that I see dropped the most often in many churches. And so there's a lot of churches. There's a lot of, of, of teachers even in which you will see, right, the idea of sin scrubbed completely, uh, you know. And so um, anyway, I'm so tempted to name names right now, but that'll give us off, off course. All right, here we go. <laughs> D, this corresponds to the four movements of what we call the meta-narrative of the Bible. Creation, God created, right? Fall, man sinned. Redemption, what we talked about on Sunday is one way to put that. Christ came, died, and rose again. And then restoration or consummation. That is the fulfillment of God's plan. So we respond and then we get to be a part of bringing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. People are drawn to these epic stories. Billions of dollars are spent every year by Hollywood to produce and people consuming superhero movies, movies about good and bad. Why? Because people are longing for a bigger and a better story to be a part of. Well, I will argue that story is found in the gospel story. And when we look at the great themes of the Bible, this is a beautiful little four-paneled painting that just captures some of these ideas. It's just a piece of art, right? And if you look really closely, it's hard to read on here, but it says, life, loss, love, and then life again. And so it's a picture of those four movements. There's lots of ways artistically to depict that. But the gospel itself walks right alongside the entire storyline of the Bible. And, and this is especially relevant for gospel conversations, this corresponds to the four fundamental worldview questions that every person has to answer. This is how C.S. Lewis came to faith, by the way. An intellectual, this really appeals to them because C.S. Lewis was raised in the church, said, nope, I'm an intellectual, I reject that. But then he started to ask the question, what belief system makes the most sense out of the world that we're in? And when you begin to ask these questions, you begin to realize that the Christian story rings the deepest, is the truest answer for these questions. Number one, where did we come from? Who made us? To whom are we accountable? Number two, what is wrong with the world? What's our problem? Are we in trouble and why? It should just say, why are we in trouble, right? Because it doesn't take, take much to figure out that we're in trouble. Number three, what's the solution to the problem? Or how can I be saved? What's God's answer? And how has he acted to save us? And number four, what do I need to do about it? So what do I have to do right here, right now to be a part of this saving plan? What makes this good news? And so in a lot of my conversations, my gospel conversations with people, I listen until I hear them basically asking one of these four questions. And number two, by the way, is by far the most prevalent. People will launch into, man, we just can't get along in this world. Man, have you seen what's happening in the news? Can you believe that we're so divided as a nation, right? Well, there's a reason why. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. 
All right, flip over the page. So Ephesians 2, 1 and 10, and we covered this extensively in a sermon just a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not gonna rehash the whole sermon. I told Brian, always my temptation as a pastor is to preach to you every sermon I've preached when we come to these texts, but uh, I know that you guys are rooted in this stuff. But just to remind you, we are saved, number one, by grace, number two, through faith, number three, in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 10. All three elements must be present for us to be saved biblically. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. One of my favorite tools to present this is the Romans road because Paul lays out in the book of Romans a very orderly, a very logical progression and explanation of what's taking place. It doesn't work for everybody, but my favorite way to share this is, is that every Bible I've ever had, I have highlighted and marked these verses. So when God opens up the door, and this is just another gut check for me that it's not about my tactics, right? It's the word of God speaking to them. I have been doing this since I was a youth pastor. I'll take, right, the Bible and I will literally put it in front of them. I'll say, hey, read this verse, even if they've never read a Bible before. And then I will say, hey, so explain to me what's happening there. You know, walk me through what, what is Paul saying to us? And I'll have them, you know, share that back with me. And as we walk down that Romans road, it's pretty remarkable to just watch the word of God work in somebody's heart and to work in their life. And so Romans 1.16, we've already, already covered. I always make that clear, right? We're not ashamed of the gospel. This is what has the power to save. Your money can't save you. Your position can't save you. Your title can't save you. Your bank account can't save you. I believe this is what saves you. And we begin to walk down it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, how did God make that gift possible? This way, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated, he showed, he proved, is one of the translations of that Greek word, his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still the enemy of God, God did something for you that even your best friend, right, would have difficulty doing. He died for you. And then, so how do I receive that gift? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But do you know what? That's not the end of the story. I don't like to end there, right? Because now that you are saved, you should grow in Christ's likeness. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. We don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then just for fun, sometimes I like to jump over to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so just by walking people right through scripture, just rooting that, being sure they understand that this is the gospel. This isn't something I invented. This isn't something that, you know, uh, theologians sat around in an ivy t ivory tower and came up with, but this is the inspired word of God. And one of my favorite summaries of the gospel uh, was first articulated. I first heard it from David Platt. And so you'll see all of the cross-references that are listed below that. Uh, and sometimes you will hear me share this from the pulpit uh, because I've memorized it. I've taped it to the inside of my Bible. I always want to have it handy. So if I need to summarize the gospel, I can do it in this. The good news is that the, the only true God, the just and gracious creator of the universe, has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin through his substitutionary death on the cross and to show his power over sin and death and the resurrection from the grave so that every Everyone who turns from them sin and themselves and trusts Jesus alone as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. So that's a short paragraph 
that summarizes multiple verses in the Bible uh, that is, is pretty easy to memorize. And I know some people, it's easier for you to memorize. It's, it's harder, those kind of things. But, you know, when I was a kid, I could memorize the stats off the back of a baseball card. I can tell you that Willie McGee batted 351 for the Cardinals in 1985 when he won the MVP, right? Why do we remember that stuff? Because we absorbed it. I grew up with it. I love it. I love the game of baseball, right? So we remember the things that we care about. My wife's birthday, I better remember it, right? Or I'm gonna be in trouble. Why? Because I care about her and I wanna honor her on that day. The things we care about, we memorize. Uh, you know, it, we hold it in our heart. And so, you know, it, the ability, again, you can use whatever tools you need, but you, we also want to be prepared to share. So the gospel, and let me say this, also must be shared verbally and lived out intentionally. I've spoken about this. I mentioned, I believe, last week as well. When Jesus shared, there was always ministry and message that were intertwined together. Part of the problem we're having in the world today is there's a lot of churches that want to go out and do good works because the world will praise you for that. John chapter 6, Jesus fed the crowds. What did they want to do? Make him king. It literally says that. And then Jesus began to open his mouth and teach them the word of God. And he began to talk about sacrifice and suffering and his body and his blood, and it freaked them out. And it says at the end of that passage, they drove him to the side of a cliff to kill him. That shows you how fickle the crowds are. And so we can't just do good works to do good works. We do good works so that we can tell people why. Remember uh, Matthew 5, where it says, you know, let them see your good deeds. Why? so that they can glorify your Father who's in heaven, not so that they can praise you on Instagram and Facebook, not so that you can gain followers or just a reputation in your community as being a bunch of good people, right? The Boys and Girls Club, the Rotary Club, you know, Elks Lodge, they're all capable of doing good works. Why do we do them? To open up avenues to share the gospel of Jesus. There's this saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I've Sad to confess that I used that as a youth minister, as a young guy. I was like, that sounds cool. I didn't think critically about what it's really saying. First of all, there's no proof that the dude really ever said it, right? The St. Francis said it. But number two, it's not truth. As the Bible itself tells us that the gospel must be declared. Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 15 through 17. This passage is important as we think about how we share the gospel. It says, uh, beginning in, well, I'll go back to verse 14. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And we all know, take a look at your feet. Imagine your feet. Anybody in here raise their hand and say, I have beautiful feet, right? No, <laughs> by their very nature, our feet are pretty ugly, but they're pretty important. Because if you've ever broken a toe, <laughs> if you've ever you know, been in a boot, you know, right? It's difficult to walk. I love that Paul you know, flips that around and says, and uses that, that uh, passage from the Old Testament to say, listen, feet that carry the gospel are beautiful. Not because they're physically appealing, but because they are carrying the message of Christ to other people. And so, and not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. 
So we cannot believe without hearing the gospel. The gospel has to be verbalized to be shared. And so Jesus prioritized, prioritized both ministry and message, and we can't separate the two either. And that's important for us to remember. So let's be sure that we're rooted in the gospel. That's why I tell you often as a pastor, speak the gospel to yourself. Preach it to yourself every morning. You know, begin your day just being gospel-saturated so that as your day goes on, that's what's going to come out of you naturally, right? Is remembering, you know, I was once a sinner, but God saved me. I deserve to be separated from him, but he gave me mercy and grace. And so we can extend that to others as well because the more we're rooted in the gospel, the more we're going to share it. And another thing, you know, when I, again, growing up, I kind of thought, yeah, gospel 101, I get it. I'm going to move on to deeper things as I grow as a Christian, like eschatology and, you know, uh, all, you know, speaking in tongues and right, spiritual gifts. What's that all about? You begin to think about these things that you, here's the reality. None of us who are Christians ever move past the gospel. God only takes us deeper into it as we apply it to more and more of our lives, our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, our choices, our entertainments, what you begin to realize, right, is the gospel saturates everything. And the deeper I go into the gospel, the more congruently I live, you know, in an awareness of God's grace and his presence and his mercy in my life. And the more I want other people to know how good that is as well. And so we, that's the first part of our, of our gospel conversation definition for a reason, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not sharing the good news about the Tennessee Titans, Right? We're not sharing the good news about the restaurant down the street. Now, those are conversations that might open the door to gospel conversations, but those in and of themselves are not gospel conversations. And Aaron, when he shares in a couple weeks, he's got some pretty good examples of things that people have thought were gospel conversations, but are, are not. So the gospel conversations have to begin with the gospel itself. Number two, the lost and searching. Jesus said, Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, there's been a generation of kind of evangelism, church growth experts tell us we shouldn't use the term lost. Guess what I think? If Jesus used the word, I'm comfortable using it. Bottom line, it's, it's a descriptor, but I think it's an accurate one. So who are the lost and searching? Well, it describes the condition of those who haven't professed belief in Jesus and are separated from God. As scriptures describe lostness, in terms of destruction, ruin, eventual leading to death, as we just talked about in the Romans Road. And using the word loss keeps us mindful at what's at stake, that we want to see people receive eternal life. So let's look at a couple of examples of the lost and searching in the New Testament. Go with me to John 4. Oh, I wish I had my whole time to preach my whole sermon on John 4 to you. But this is the story of the woman at the well. And... I love that this story begins with this statement. Uh, if you go down, kind of in verse 3, it says, He left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. Now, it's true that that was pretty much the shortest route from, from to, to get back home to the Galilee region. But here's the reality. The Jews in the first century didn't go that way. They intentionally went out of their way to stay out of the hated Samaritan's territory. But it says here, Jesus had to. Why? divine appointment. Jesus knew there was someone there who needed the gospel. And so, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that uh, uh, Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well and it was about noon and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now in the Middle East, do you do your work in the heat of the day? 
Anybody go out in the middle of the day about noon today? You would melt your face off here. It was so humid and hot. It's just like you walk outside right now and the humidity just like, you know, gives you a warm, you know, slimy hug. It's gross right now. Well, in the Middle East, it's always hot. So you go to the well first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening, right? As the sun is setting. Jars of water, they're heavy. Have you ever carried one? It's hard work. So why is this woman showing up? Because she knows nobody else is gonna be there in the middle of the day. But Jesus was like, oh, I'm gonna be there. And so he initiates this conversation with this woman, and many of you are familiar with the story, so I won't rehash it all, but there's kind of four movements to the story. The first one is conversation. It's interesting that this is the longest recorded conversation in the New Testament that Jesus has with anybody. It's not with his disciples. It's not a theological debate with the Pharisees. It's not with Pilate before his crucifixion. The longest recorded conversation that the gospel authors gave us is with this woman, which teaches us something. Why? There were a ton of barriers between Jesus and her. He's male, she's female. Huge gap, especially in that era. He is Jewish, she is Samaritan. He is Jesus, she's been divorced five times, right? Like there is every reason in the world for them to not connect. And so I believe that part of the reason we have that is to point out to us that when there are people who are far from Christ, there are people who are far from the gospel, it takes time and intentional conversation to bridge that gap. Jesus shows her respect. He talks to her like she's a real person. Most people in that area, again, men wouldn't even talk to a woman, much let alone a Samaritan woman. Bad blood between those two people. If anything, right, he would have demanded that, you know, he get her a drink, that kind of thing. is probably what she would have expected. Instead, he speaks to her like she's a real living human being. He shows her dignity. He shows her worth. And then you see Jesus sharing conviction with her as well. That as the conversation goes on, Jesus confronts her about her marital status and the fact that she is currently living with a man. Now, I don't have time to get into it tonight, right? But if you really, really lean into this text, you will know that in the Bible, the reasons given in the first century for divorce, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, was the idea that there was something unpleasant in a woman. And so the men had all of the power in that culture. So we don't know why, but this woman had been dismissed multiple times by multiple husbands. And in that era, you had no ability to go earn your own living, own property, vote, do anything if you were a woman. And so Jesus confronts her. She's not married to the man she's living with, and that's not a good thing. But I believe there's more compassion here than most people realize when they read this passage. Because what he's telling her is, is you have been rejected by man after man. Let me tell you about living water. You have been trying to find what satisfies you in relationships with men. And man after man has dismissed you and left you vulnerable. But let me tell you about something, a well you can drink of from which you will never go thirsty again. I mean, it is a beautiful and compelling, deep conversation. And the more you dig in it, the more powerful it becomes. And so Jesus, right, then as they work through the text, she asks a legitimate spiritual question. A lot of people think that she's trying to juke, right, that she's trying to throw him off. But as you know, sometimes chasing a rabbit in a conversation goes somewhere. And Jesus gives us the verse, right, about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Like he sees that as a worthy rabbit trail to chase with her for a moment and makes a very important statement about what's to come in his kingdom. And then, of course, Jesus reveals, right, that she says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. That's in verse 25. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. 
And so she gets up, runs into town, goes, tells people about him, right? And, and then we see the spread of the gospel in, in an area that was foreign to it. And so you just see this incredible example of Jesus engaging in compassion, in conviction, in conversation that eventually leads to conversion. And so we see one of the earliest examples of someone who needed Jesus. Jesus had to go there. Why? Because she needed the gospel. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 19. This story is shorter and very familiar to you because a lot of you have been singing the little song since you were in Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a what? Wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a what? Sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he said, Zacchaeus, you came down. Wait, I missed something, didn't I? Hey, he looked up in that tree. Yes, thank you. I forgot that line. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For what? I'm going to your house today. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He is a Benedict Arnold. He is a traitor. He's in cahoots with the hated Romans. He's unclean. He's filthy. And yet again, as I said earlier, Jesus is compelling to people. And so Zacchaeus wants to get a look at Jesus. What's in the way? The crowd. Jesus overcomes the crowd by looking him in the eye and saying, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house today. And so in that era, even like ours, if you have a meal with somebody, that's a sign. That's a sign of acceptance. Not that he accepted his way of life or condoned that at all, but that as a person, he recognized the heart of Zacchaeus. And so as, as he was there, right, verse eight, but Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Zacchaeus's identity had been in his money, being a tax collector. The surest sign that he had been transformed by Jesus was that he didn't care about his money anymore. It's not where his identity was. And so Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For, and here's the verse, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. So when we are intentional about gospel conversations, we are joining Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost. The problem for some of us is, is that, and this, I'm just being transparent because I work with church staff who asked me this question, I've had some of you be transparent. You're like, everybody I know is a Christian, or at least you think they are. We surround ourselves with a Christian subculture, and we don't spend enough time, right, looking for the Zacchaeuses who are very curious about Jesus. But Zacchaeus isn't walking into the synagogue or the temple because he won't be accepted there. And you have neighbors and family members and friends who won't come walking in the doors of the church because they think, incorrectly, but they think that they won't be accepted here. Jesus went seeking them. And so what an opportunity for us to remember that we need to have relationships, not so we can be influenced by the world, but so that we can have opportunities to share the hope of Christ with the way that we live with them. Turn with me over to Acts chapter nine. Luke's sequel. Acts chapter nine, verse one. A guy named Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, I love that term, right, for the early Christians, they belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So interesting. This guy named Saul is basically our modern day equivalent of a terrorist. He's hunting down Christians and persecuting them. As I was watching emails go out about what's happening in Afghanistan, I read one, clicked on a link from one of our IMB missionaries 
Do you know what the prayer was? Of course, there were all the things there. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the people in the country. Here was one that stunned me because I hadn't thought this way. Sometimes I just don't think big enough. I don't think gospel enough. We are praying that among these Taliban people who are going from house to house killing Christians, Lord, would there be a Saul who becomes a Paul? That's a prayer, right? Because that's exactly what Saul was doing. That's exactly what was taking place here. And so what happened as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And so, obviously, Saul would have been the last person that most Christians, especially early Christians, would have ever thought would come to saving faith in Jesus. And yet Jesus confronted him right there on the road to Damascus. Uh, our church multiplication minister, Fadi Al-Hajjal, he's from this area of the world. He will tell you, right? That, that's his people right there in Damascus. He's been to these sites and these places. And so we see that God can save people in a moment. And we call this, right? Some people have a Paul experience. It is a thunderous, sudden change. And it's kind of funny if you read the rest of the story, a little comical because, right, all of the Christians that God tells, hey, go talk to this guy. They're like, uh, I don't think so, right? At first they're like, uh, you mean that guy, the one who's been hunting us down and killing us? You know, I'm not sure. But again, faith on display. They're obedient to God. And so we have to be obedient as well. And so we know that God began to use Saul, now Paul, in an incredible way, and he became God's chosen instrument, it says later in the chapter, to the Gentiles. Crazy that a Jew-persecuting Christians, right, becomes God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And then, man, this story, again, is a whole chapter to unpack, but you've got Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10, in the very next chapter. So you got Peter. Peter ends up having this vision, right? Because Peter is a Jew and you don't associate with the Gentiles, much less Roman people. But you've got a seeker, a God-fearer by the name of Cornelius. By the way, interesting theme in Scripture that centurions who were over people were particularly drawn to the gospel. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's about authority and maybe it's about their level of responsibility. There was something there that just made them realize. But, but Centurions, and, and, and Cornelius was one of them, they're uniquely open to the gospel. And so he's searching. This is when we talk about lost and searching, right? He's trying to figure this thing out. He is a God of fear and God sends Peter to him to explain his vision. And I love the end of this. And I want to point this out. Verse 44 of chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. So the gospel is breaking down barriers right and left. For they heard him speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. It echoes Pentecost. Then Peter responded, can anyone withhold with water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay for a few days because they had so many questions they wanted to ask him. And one of the things that happens here is Cornelius is not only saved, but his whole household as well. His family, his extended family, his servants. And we see how the gospel transforms not only individuals, but homes. So when you reach the dad, you reach the family often. When you reach the mom, you reach the family. Uh, when you reach those who have a sphere of influence, you reach the, the boss, you reach the coach, all of a sudden it transforms everyone around them as well. The Greek word is oikos. 
And one of the strategies we've used over the years is what we called an oikos card or a prayer evangelistic card that you would pray, right, for, for 10 or more people at a time who were in your sphere of influence that they would come to know Christ because they have their sphere of influence as well. And so what an opportunity. And we could go example by example, but I just wanted you to see some pictures. This is how the Bible depicts lost and searching. They're from all walks of life. As the apostles are being faithful and carrying out their ministry, there are barriers to overcome, but they're obedient to the Holy Spirit when he says, go to this guy who's a Roman centurion. Go to this person who's an outsider, a tax collector. Go to this person who's a woman at the well, right? Jesus modeled that for us and his church carried that out as well. That often the last people that we think could get saved are the ones that God draws to salvation, which again proves that it's not about us. So how do we connect with these people who are lost and searching? Well, number one, awareness. We believe that God is always doing something in the person next to us. When I sit down on an airplane, I always think, I'm a preacher and I got a captive audience for the next two or three hours. Lord, what are you doing in this person who's seated next to me? You know, and you sit down next to me at a restaurant. You know, in these moments, what's God doing in this person next to me? He's placed us next to them, I believe, for a reason. I don't think you're living in the house you are just because you found a nice house and a good place to raise your family. I think God puts you there because you're supposed to be next to people as neighbors who need to see the love of Jesus Christ. I think you're in the apartment you're in. I think you're in the job you're in. I think you're in the circles you're in. Why? Because God wanted you next to those people. So we learn to believe that the spirit inside us is at work in both the people around us and in our own lives to connect the two. As I mentioned, prayer. We daily pray for God to show us uh, to show, for God to use us to show Christ to others in word and in deed, as it says in 1 John three eighteen. So pray daily for, number one, opportunities to speak about Jesus. God, would you give me the opportunity today to speak about you? Number two, the wisdom to see those opportunities. That one's crucial because I think a lot of times, and I'm wired this way, I got my to-do list. I am laser focused on what I wanna do. One really cool story from the early days of Station Hill was that one of our early families, a husband and wife who came to Christ, their journey started when one of our church members stopped on I-65 to help them change a spare tire. And as you know, you break down on the interstate and people are kind and loving as they all stop to show their concern for you and your safety, right? Isn't that the way it works on I-65? No, they said people were flying by, cussing at them, throwing like, you know, I mean, it's crazy, throwing cups out, you know, their window at them, you know, giving them the old one-way sign, as we might call it. And so, but one of our church members stopped, helped them change the tire as they were serving, right? And he had an appointment to be at, but he just said, I, 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 knew, I, I knew I could help. And I, as a former Marine, wanted to be able to help. And so he led into a conversation, you know, and he said, well, I, you know, do y'all go to church anywhere? And they said, no, you know, we, we're not Christians. And he said, well, why don't you come to me with, you know, come with me to, to my church? And so they came to Station Hill. This was in our first year. It got saved, baptized. It's, you know, just how sometimes God works. So we need to pray for the wisdom to see those opportunities. And number three, the courage to take them. That in that moment, you know, you've got to have the courage to, to walk through that opening in the conversation, to, to, to be able to go there with people. Number three, preparation. So we learn to live in a way that enables others where we live, work, and play to see and hear the change, changes that Jesus makes in us. I'm not going to elaborate on this. Brian's going to go into this next week as well. But we need to always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have, 1 Peter 3.15. That implies what? That we're living differently than the world and people are responding to us. And so just as they see us live our lives, why do you do that? Why is your marriage like that? <laughs> Why do you serve people in that way? Why do you care? Why do you give? 
You know, why do you do these things? Well, let me tell you, it's Jesus. Number four, listening. I will argue that in today's world in which everybody wants to cram a message down your throat, listening is an act of love. And when you sit down, somebody knee to knee face to face and you say, tell me your story. Talk to me about your pain. Talk to me about what's going on in your life. It is an act of love. Jesus modeled that on the Emmaus Road. Remember, he meets the two who are leaving Jerusalem. They are discouraged. They are disillusioned. Well, tell me what's going on. Oh, you hadn't heard of what happened in Jerusalem? I mean, it's almost comical, right? Jesus is like, no, tell me about these things, right? What things happened in Jerusalem? He listens, and in doing so, he hears their story. And we need to be able to do the same. Number five, we need to connect with others. You connect authentically with the lost and searching generally around one of two things. Their passions, what they're interested in. Again, I can talk St. Louis Cardinals baseball with anybody, right? Come on. Or their pain. Their pain. Their painful experiences in life. And so those are two great avenues to use to connect with people. And then that leads to conversation. And we learn to have gospel conversations more than gospel presentations. I'm not anti-gospel presentation. Don't hear that. We're going to talk about one. Uh, we're going to talk about several in a couple of weeks because we want you to have tools to use. But, but, but the emphasis, right, is on a conversation developing what we would call gospel fluency. How the gospel, just like you're fluent in a language, you want to be fluent in the gospel so that you can speak it into anybody's life at any point because we naturally talk about what we love. It's just natural and it should be in us. Number seven, there's gonna be challenges. We learn to remove roadblocks and raise questions that only Jesus can answer over the course of conversations. Over time, you learn, right, to guide those conversations to help people realize, oh, I can't figure that out. Oh, I, I need help in this area. So you don't have to have all the answers, but you do have to believe and let them know that you believe that Jesus is the answer to all of their questions. One of the quotes I like, it's not in your handout, but it's this. The lost are more amazed at our silence than they are offended by our message. Did you realize that? The lost are more amazed at our silence. If you really believe this, like if you really believe that eternity is in the balance, why wouldn't you tell me? I began to notice this shift several years ago when I was a, a youth pastor because I would be very bold. I learned the more bold I was with this generation, which they're largely millennials now, you know, that are now our young adults, the more bold I was, the more they would respond. And many of them would say things like this to me. You know what, pastor? You know what, Jay? I don't agree with you, but I respect that you're an adult who's willing to stand up and tell me what you really believe because they can smell fake. They know when we're trying to soft pedal the gospel. They know when we're being inauthentic. The lost and searching aren't interested in a watered down version of Christianity. I'm telling you, they're not. All right? You can find watered down religions all over the place. They want to know what we really believe. And they may disagree with it. They may argue with us, all of the things. But they will respect us more when we tell them what we really believe. Then authenticity. We learn to make true friends and not merely visits regardless of someone's response to the gospel. People can tell if you care about them. People can tell if you believe what you're talking about. And people can tell if God is at work in your life. I love the way Paul puts this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, it delighted us to share not only the gospel with you, but our very lives as well. In other words, it was just evident, right? In the way that we live, right? It's, it's all intertwined. Our life and the gospel. The gospel and our life. So, that is the lost and searching. Now, trusting the Holy Spirit with the results. At the end of the day, the Bible is clear. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Revelation 7.10, many other passages support that. God saves people, not us. Now, he graciously uses us. 
and he wants us to be obedient to him, but it is his spirit at work within us. So remember that. Keep that in perspective as you share. One of my favorite stories I've ever heard about evangelism was shared here in this uh, pulpit or in this platform. We hosted an IMB missions intensive when David Platt was still the president of the IMB. And he shared this one story about one of our missionaries and they, they were passionate about passing out Bibles and, you know, and they really thought they had kind of the system down and they were seeing some response in Europe, right, to distributing Bibles. And so they were a little bit like, hey, we're doing a great job here. And there was this one guy they were really proud of who had come to faith. And then one night he shared his testimony with them that it actually wasn't kind of their presentation and the way that they were doing it. He actually was picking up their Bibles because he wanted to roll them to smoke marijuana with. He was using the Bible paper, it was nice and thin, right, to smoke his joints. And so they told their missionary, I smoked my way through Matthew. I smoked my way through Mark. I smoked my way through John. And then at some point in the Gospel of Luke, I was reading these pages and the word led me to Christ, right? (laughs) So just remember, like that's the way that the gospel operates and that it works. Yes, God uses us, but sometimes it's in unexpected ways, but ultimately it's about God. John 16, 26, when the counselor of this Holy Spirit comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You see, I believe the Holy Spirit is always at work drawing people. And, and often he gives us the opportunity, right, to be the ones who, let, let me tell you what that is, just like Paul at Marcel, right? Let me tell you what that unknown God is that you've been looking for. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So know that, be encouraged by that, that God is always at work drawing people to himself. And then, of course, Acts 1, 8, since the Spirit is the one who brings about the response, this removes some of the anxiety, stress, and pressure to, quote, close the deal. We are not spiritual hucksters, We're not salespeople. That's not our job. But we are faithful witnesses. And a witness does what? Let me tell you what I've seen and heard. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. It's the testimony of the blind man. I was once blind, but now I see. Let me tell you my version of that story. And then E, we are more concerned with faithful obedience to share the gospel than we are with the results. God will bring about the harvest if we are faithful workers. We know that. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter nine. So I love what David Platt says in his book, Radical. How do we respond to this gospel? Suddenly contemporary Christianity sales pitches don't seem adequate anymore. Our attempt to reduce the gospel to a shrink wrap presentation that persuades someone to say or pray the right thing back to us no longer seems appropriate. We've taken the infinitely glorious son of God who endured the infinitely terrible wrath of God and who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all. And we have reduced him to a poor puny savior who is just begging for us to accept him. Accept him? Do we really think Jesus needs our acceptance? Don't we need him? That's what we want to point people to. I needed him. You needed him. He saved us and he can do the same for them as well. So with that, it's kind of a broad introduction, right, to our definition. I hope unpacking that is encouraging and helpful to you. Next week, Brian's gonna elaborate on it, and then Aaron in a couple of weeks is gonna give us some real practical handles for how we live that out. But do we have some questions tonight, Brian? Then come up and join me as we work through some questions this evening. I even remember to pick up the microphone this week, so that'll make, make this significantly more, more effective. 
All right. So the first question, these actually two questions that are the, the same question, that are two parts of the same question. Okay. Said, is is it then possible for for at all for someone to quote get saved unquote by grace through faith without ever hearing the gospel, a foreign island or whatever, or is every person where the gospel has not been spoken eternally lost? Hmm. Yes, the question. Well, Elijah and Moses seem to show up, <laughs> right, right, at the Transfiguration. So yeah. it, it, it kind of gets into the sense of the gospel because there's general revelation. Right. Right. And Romans, so Romans chapter 1. one and so mm -hmm. we are all without excuse. Mm -hmm. And so there is a general relation. So there is a sense in which the gospel has, has been revealed to all through God himself. But then there's an obligation to those of us with what we have been given yes. to share the gospel the way we have been given it. Does that make sense? Yep. Yes, and, and to that point too, and this begs the question, it's not worded this way, I don't believe. I'm not looking at it directly, but often the question comes, what about the, quote, innocent person who has never heard the gospel? Back to Romans 1. There is no, no such thing as an innocent person. Right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reality is, is even someone who hasn't heard the gospel, right, they are, by their inherited nature, right, we are all sinners who rebel and go our own way. It's why sharing the gospel is so important. Think about it. Otherwise, the very worst thing we could do is send missionaries because then we would be condemning those people on that island who had never heard Jesus to hell right. because they might reject him. So the best thing we should do is sit at home and not go tell anybody about Jesus. Do you see the faulty logic in that? And so that's why it's so imperative that we go and tell. Now, we do know, right, general revelation, Romans 1 tells us, right, that God has, has left evidence of him everywhere. Right. And so, you know, the, but, but that's why there's an urgency for us to go, yeah. because we have to share with them that specific revelation. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It says, um, help, in, help reconcile scriptures none seek with the popular position of seeker-sensitive church movement. What is it? <laughs> it does, does man seek or is God seeking us? Um, God is seeking us. That's what we just read in Scripture, yeah. right? And so the initiation is on God's part. That's what none seek means, is God so seeks us first. That's different than the seeker-sensitive movement, which tends to, to do relatively cultural, attractive presentations mm -hmm. to bring people in to hear the gospel. Does that make sense? And that's what seeker-sensitive means. If there's some prompting of them, we can put some type of culturally appealing... A show, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. I'm not a real hip on seeker sensitive personally. Um, it, it, it's to put on some kind of show that will bring people in and then you tell them about the gospel. Yeah, you have to almost define, well, you need to define terms. First of all, two layers, right? One is, is the layer of that, that verse in, in Romans that says like no one seeks him. Right. That, that's true. Right. So as we talked about, there's many verses in the Bible that say that the Holy Spirit draws oh, us. Right. That the Holy Spirit, so, so that, that's, what, you know, that, that's where that process begins. And so we have to be sure that like on a very foundational level, it's true. Like we're sinners and left to our own devices. We're not interested in God. We're not interested in the gospel. Right. We're only interested in, our, in ourselves. But the Holy Spirit works to begin to draw people you know, um, in, in an awareness of their sin and, and their need for salvation. Now, equating that, right, to the, the, the term seeker is loaded. Right. On one hand, so to some people, seeker means there, there are people who are genuinely asking questions. They're genuinely interested in, in finding these answers. And that the seeker-sensitive movement was, a, you know, an intentional response to those. 
if seeker movement means we're watering down the gospel, we're removing the crosses because we don't want to offend, we're, you know, we're watering down, then no, that's not a healthy thing. So again, some of the expression of that, like so many things you can go into in a ditch on either side of the road, but we want to keep it where the Bible keeps it. Exactly, exactly. Um, is a gospel conversation about salvation or just talking about God with someone? It's about salvation. Yes, it's, it's, great it's question. About being, yeah. It's about salvation. Because we, we can talk about God in lots of ways, mm-hmm. right, that never lead to why is Jesus unique? Why, is, right, why are we fallen? Why do you need to be saved? Right? And that's what, that's what I love that you say. Right? The part of, the, of those four things that we tend to ignore is sin. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we don't want to think of ourselves as, as needing help. Yeah. Right? We have a culture where that's seen as weakness. Right? That scene, that scene as the greatest sin is believing you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's so destructive to us because there's a wonderful book, called, I think it's called The Culture of the Therapeutic, mm-hmm. and talks about in psychology in the, in the 60s, we transform from being sinful to being sick. Mm-hmm. Right? Because what can you do about being sick? You can get better. What can you do about sinful? Nothing, right? And so there was this culture of the therapeutic, and that's led to a lot of our current thought on cultural salvation, if you want to use the term, right? Secular salvation that we can, right? That's why there's a whole section since the 1960s in the bookstore called self-help. Yep. That's because we're sick and we're not sinful, yeah. right? Because we can deal with sick. We can't deal with sinful. That's so on point. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So just to clarify, right? A gospel conversation, those, those four elements. Now, you may cover them over a number of conversations, you know, th- those kind of things, but they've got to include God, man, Christ response. Right. Like that, that, that is, is crucial because you, you can talk theology all day long. Right. Or, or, or whatever, you know. Uh, and so, and certainly those conversations help us understand about God and can lead to gospel conversations you know, done in the right way. But just a, a theological conversation in and of itself is not necessarily a gospel conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Has it become a barrier to say that one has, quote, un- accepted, unquote, Christ as their Lord and Savior based on Platt's quote? Yeah. And I use that quote to point out that sometimes we don't think intentionally about the terminology that we use and where it comes from. I, 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 I've said it before, right? I accepted Christ when I was seven years old. It's, you know, most people use that in a non-harmful way. But it is important that we, we realize that, to his point, you know, Jesus isn't out there, you know, just begging for us to accept him. We're the ones who need him. And so we have to recognize that need and dependence. And so I, I do think, I love the term gospel response. Right. I think that that is, is, is helpful to say because it, it works on lots of different levels, right? Gospel response for the person who's an unbeliever, becoming a believer, the person who needs to, to take a step of obedience in their, in their life or in their faith. You know, I think there are more helpful and less helpful, helpful ways theologically of talking about salvation. Right, and if you don't define terms, you obviously haven't raised Benjamin. <laughs> Yeah. It will wear you out on defining terms. Yeah. Well, and that's a big challenge that we have. And in evangelism, let me say that because that's actually a really yeah. important point. You do have to be sure with a lot of people you define terms right. so that you're not talking past each other. So that's a part of what I would call seeking to understand because we do that a lot in our culture and especially generation to generation. And, you know, we, we, so, so it, it, and it's why conversations often take time because we're almost back in Babel. <laughs> Nobody knows what anything means anymore. 
Well, and it's faith to faith. I mean, I've used, I've told this story before, right? One of Micah's, you know, fellow friends in kindergarten, his dad is a Baha'i, is Baha'i and is one very mm-hmm. prominent, world-renowned doctor. And he, he found me at this fifth grade, at this five-year-old uh, birthday party and said, I understand you're a thinking Christian. I was like, well, thanks, I think. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, he said, I'm Baha'i. Do you know what the Baha'i faith is? I said, no. He said, I said, I know it's kind of, it's pluralistic. He said, well, yes and no, to which I said, <laughs> that would be that'd be pluralism, and so he said, "Well, we both believe in Jesus," and I said, "That's fantastic." I said, "Tell me about Jesus." He said, "Well, Jesus came down in Melchizedek, and Jesus came down in in Buddha, and Jesus came down. Jesus, thankful to know that, right? And lastly, Jesus came in Baha'u in 1844 in India, and he explained, and he said, and I said, "Well, I said we believe in a different Jesus," and so even when you're talking about Jesus. Good. You've got to be careful that we're talking about the same Jesus. By the way, that's also true within the Christian-ish faith because there's a lot of Christian ease about Jesus, yep. right? And, and sometimes not the common definition. So he, by the way, he sent me the Baha'i holy books. And I have read them. I have, I have them in my home. I have read the Baha'i holy books not to seek truth, but so that when I talk to my friend about Jesus, I understand what to say so he knows who Jesus is, who the Jesus Christ that we worship and not the Jesus that came down as Mikel today. Mm-hmm, that's good. And I always point out you know, to people, I, I, I'm going to define this term for you the way the Bible defines it. Right. That's the way I understand that's it. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, as the body of Christ is many parts functioning differently, how does teamwork play into gospel conversations? Oh, that's so good. We're going to get to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, that's... Yeah. This. Absolutely. I'm really glad somebody brought that up because it is. It, there is witnessing individuals, but God has also called us to witness as the church, Amen. as a witnessing community. And so it's part of why, to go back to the very first thing I said tonight, Gospel Conversations is a part of our church-wide strategy because absolutely, our groups, our teams, our church, you know, as, as a whole, there is a witnessing community aspect to that. And it is true. Some people are more effective at being the feet. Some are more effective at being the mouthpieces. Some are very good listeners. They're good at being the ears. Hey, listen to this, per-, you know. And so together, we are better together, just like we are in everything else as, as a body of believers than we are apart for evangelism. Great, great point. And we should probably close. We've got one last question. We should yep. probably close it down. It says, how do we best communicate that salvation is not a checkbox for heaven, but rather a changed life in the here and now? You do that by living a changed life in the here and now for them to see. Yeah. Yeah. And and an understanding of the gospel, right, doesn't just punch my ticket to heaven. It does. Praise God. But it is the the beginning of a relationship now and forever. And that's, that's, you know, again, that's some of the the misunderstandings, I think misrepresentation of previous generations of, you know, avoid hell, go to heaven. That's what evangelism is all about. Well, yes, but the reality is, is that we, you know, begin new life in Christ now and that life will extend forever. So I go back to whole gospel. Right. Like that's where you really have to understand the, the whole nature of the gospel as we explain that. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Thank you so you did a wonderful job, man. No, That's fantastic. You guys are fantastic. Yeah. Well, let, me, let me close this Thank in prayer. We'll, we'll get out of here. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace. Thankful for your, your son that saves us. Thankful for your message. Thankful for your gospel. Yep. Uh, that we get to share the gospel of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. with the lost. And, and Father, we see them. Those, those moments, right, where we see the harvest are just so beautiful. I mean, just inexplicably beautiful to see the eternal meet us now. 
And so, Father, give us hearts that seek that. Give us lives that exude that. And so that our life following you prompts those questions, prompts those, those, those seeking, mm-hmm. uh, prompts those things about why is your life different? Why is your marriage? Why are these things different in you? And so, Father, and then give us the courage to speak. Uh, to tell them about Jesus and, and to tell them about his hope and salvation and, and bring them home to you. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.